0: Hello, welcome to "Love Is a Message," a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems, and counterculture. I'm Tim Lawrence, and I'm joined, as always, with by, by with Jeremy Gilbert. Hello, hi, Jeremy. This week we are going to carry on uh, discussing DJ culture, 1970 to 1975. This is our this is part of our kind of second series. Um, of episodes and uh, this series is covering late 60s through to around about 1975-1976 uh, and we've spoken about New York City during the 60s, uh, we've spoken about acid culture. Last week we started to talk about DJ culture in 1970-75 and we're carrying on uh, with more of the same on the same topic uh, this week, and we kind of realised last week that we had only were only sort of fleetingly uh, alluding to radio, which of course was this you know the main setting for you know what we I don't know if we could call it DJ culture, but certainly for disc jockeys to be playing music on air to audiences. So it's kind of interesting to maybe spend a little bit more time dwelling uh, on the role of the the radio DJ. So um, Jeremy, what's do you have any thoughts on kind of how, the how you know, in what ways uh, the radio DJ, you know, anticipated uh, party DJing, club DJing. Um, and I guess there's also this kind of big question of the relationship between this culture and the wider music industry.
1: Yeah, well, it is really important always to remember that radio was, after all, the sort of key, in some ways, the key broadcast medium of most of the 20th century. You know, TV really sort of displaced it until the 60s. And and for music, it remained arguably the central medium right up until the internet. And to some extent, the internet has only sort of replaced radio by copying radio in many ways. Mm. So people hearing a continuous stream of music in the sort of background, in formats that were made it quite easy to sort of ignore or pay attention to, to the extent that you want to. Yeah, that's been a really key way people have accessed music, listened to music for decades, and it had already been the case for decades by the beginning of the 70s. And certainly by the end of the 50s, there were personality DJs, especially in the States. So I guess most famously the history of the sort of popularization of rock and roll and and rhythm and blues involves DJs who importantly nobody knew if they were black or white because you couldn't see them. Mm you know it was white dj's people like alan freeman I yeah. think, like you know popularizing rhythm and blues music in what had otherwise been a really deliberately segregated music culture
0: hmm.
1: you know over the radio so all that had become really important so by the end of the 60s the, the radio dj was somebody the i mean most radio dj's like have always just played you know the commercial top 20 top 40 or And then, you know, over the past few decades, they'll usually plough some more specific commercial furrow. But already by the early 70s, the idea of the personality DJ and somebody who's associated with a specific kind of music and somebody who's a sort of gatekeeper and a sort of archivist and a sort of expert for their particular audience on particular kinds of music is really important. I mean, if you really wanted to get into this, which we're not going to have time to do in detail, you'd also talk about the, the free radio movement of the 60s, which was had, had opened up a whole different set of possibilities. And, you know, in the States and online today, like uh, WFMU, the New Jersey-based Freeform Station is still... A sort of inheritor of that tradition and you, you you have the idea of the dj who isn't really associated with a genre at all the dj is just themselves a personality and that and it is sort of the distinctiveness of their personality which generates the type of music they play and that people connect to so all that is sort of Coming around, Uh, but I guess it it is still, it is sort of countercultural. It's sort of very specific and it's sort of associated with an enthusiasm for a particular kind of music being associated with a sort of resistance to the commercial mainstream. And I th- so it's interesting to think about that, that the idea of the DJ as a personality, even on the radio, is associated with the idea of the DJ as someone who's got a sort of expert knowledge and a sort of underground knowledge.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that certainly it perfectly captured, captures Alan Freed. And you're right, there is something countercultural about this, the, you know, the way that, you know, you know, as a white, rock-leaning DJ, he sort of embraced black music. Uh, in a way that crossed the kind of, you know, the race barriers that were still kind of, you know, existent in the way that people were were living their everyday lives. And there's also this kind of, you know, there's this important idea. I mean, I guess first, you know, well, not first, but to also note that, you know, I think radio in the United States is... And the music culture, to a certain extent, during this kind of middle decade of the 20th century, I suppose, uh, and even moving to late 20th century, ha- has been more a bit more segregated than we're used to in the UK. In the UK, you can turn on the radio and you can expect to hear a whole range of music. Yeah, I think radio is, is has been much more clearly defined in the United States, maybe partly also because of its kind of commercial base as well. Uh, advertisers, you know, it's want to know what what uh, audiences they're going to reach uh, and this did this uh, on the so on the one hand this kind of specialization meant that there's there was also r- radios open to kind of you know specialist stations effectively that were appealing to specific audiences uh, and these could be kind of rock audiences but they could of course also be say primarily black audiences. Um, so you did have this kind of very you know black radio also became this kind of very important kind of means of expression. Uh, and some and some of the, the stations that were coming through in the late 1960s were you know were you know notably radical. By the early 1970s, they're um, they're also sort of seeking, along with you know, arguably black music in general, of trying to find ways to you know cross over to the mainstream. Effectively, um, so there was this guy, Frankie Crocker, who became this kind of key figure in all of this. He became the main DJ at WBLS, which had been uh, one of these kind of uh, quite a militant black radio station. Um, but with Frankie Crocker introduces what was called the total black experience in sound. And he kind of just had this, it was a kind of quite a, a soulful jazz R&B kind of aesthetic that featured artists, you know, ranging from Gregor Washington Jr. to Miles Davis to Stevie Wonder, Donny Hathaway, Marvin Gaye, Isaac Hayes. Um, All of these artists were kind of prominent on WBLS. Um, So there was also this side of like this real black black voice. And, you know, Frankie Crocker, I think he was also um, just trying to remember what his kind of um, his uh, DJ online, uh, online, on air uh, monikers were. Um, But it was it was very much about kind of it was it was very much about his ability to be kind of a smooth and slick talker to to charm, to, you know, to 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 do this sort of jive talk. Early forms of rapping also were quite prominent on on black radio as well, as as they were in sort of black mobile discos that were kind of moving around in the early 1970s as well. So kind of a lot of early early rap culture, which we'll go on to talk about a bit more, can be kind of traced to kind of this moment. But the thing about radio is it was also, I guess, I don't know what you're what you make of this, but it was kind of real it was um quite tightly associated with the um, record industry as well. As far as the record industry was concerned, radio was the way that they could market their music. It was, you know, and I'm not sure that, you know, aside from, you know, putting some adverts on billboards maybe or in music magazines and what have you, and, and use, making the most of TV, radio was really, I think, the primary way that, that the, the industry wanted to sell music. Party DJs or club DJs were not going to be part of that at all. No, that's true. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about this kind of this the, the commercial? I suppose there's this the way that comm- on some level, I mean, is commercialism the need to sell music driving? You know, is it driving radio? And does it as it will it go? Well,
1: it is driving radio. But interestingly, even though, as you say, in the states. The broadcasting model, the whole national broadcasting model is a commercial model. So you just, yeah, the idea of having public public broadcasting is kind of an afterthought. So PBS and NPR, the public broadcasting services, are these tiny, tiny institutions in the states which notoriously have to rely on their own listeners and viewers like for donations, for funding. So it's quite different from the European model, including the British model, where the state takes over main responsibility for broadcasting for most you know, in the 20th century and even subsequently. Um, but what's interesting from that perspective though, is that indeed it was considered like unfair practice for ra- music, radio DJs to give anything to give undue exposure Records, so there was a huge, uh, there was this huge scandal in the, at the end of the 50s, the payola scandal, as it was called. Uh, payola was the slang term for record companies bribing DJs to play their records on the radio. So, there was this, I guess, there was this sort of notion of free competition, and it was a sort of, you know, anti insider dealing type set of regulations. But it's interesting that even though it was a completely commercial and sort of capitalistic enterprise, there was still this notion that the DJ ought to give sort of fair exposure to a wide range of records and shouldn't, and ought to be playing either what was sort of organically popular or what they thought was a genuinely good record in in some way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, indeed, they're paid to play according to their taste rather than just it's not just it's not a pay-for kind of service that they they're providing to the record companies if the record companies pay to have music played then they'll play
1: no well they're well they're paid to deliver an audience to advertisers technically that's what they're really being paid for so i mean i think i mean the payota scandal was always this slightly you know there was a lot of sort of controversy about it there's still a sort of historical controversy over whether it was even actually fair that DJs who were, who were taking bribes from record companies to play records should have been punished for it because, you know, it's not exactly clear like what rules they were breaking or what kind of moral code they were breaking. And, and I think, you know, the... My understanding of that history, which might be faulty, is that, well, it, it was as much as anything, it was a sort of power battle between like, big advertisers and the record industry. And the big advertisers weren't happy, because the big advertisers wanted it to be the case that the only criteria for records that got played on the radio, well, it wasn't just personal tape, it was records mm. that would de- deliver an audience. Mm. And so they didn't want record companies to be able to sort of push record. They didn't want record companies to have any sort of say over it. So it was also about the idea, which is really a fairly, a really foreign idea to European audiences. The idea that sponsors really mm. are the people who dictate what what, what appears in broadcast media. that The advertisers are the people who sort of have some final say over it. And that was also... Part of it. That's partly why things like Freeform Radio and sort of free radio in the sixties took on this really kind of radical status, because the idea that you didn't have sponsors, you didn't have advertisers, that you just play you the idea you really did just play what you want was sort of in in contradistinction to that to some extent.
0: Yeah. I mean I guess broad all broadcasters and, you know, publishers in the media, they want to, you know, they they hold on to some idea about the the quality of the material that they're broadcasting. Uh, they trying to, they're trying to attract audiences through you know the originality of their programming or the rigor of their programming or the or the joy that their programming can provide, but as soon as you, you, you as soon as you bring in uh, an outside uh, commercial interest that is able to d- dictate the content, uh, not just suggest what might be. Well, we might go into the content, but dictate the content, then the credibility of the of the broadcaster is, is compromised and actually that undermines its commercial operation as well, I suppose.
1: One of the things we're getting at here, isn't, isn't it, is the tension actually in the role of the DJ, which does then play out in, in terms of the role of the club DJ, which is, is the DJ the hit maker or are they just the person who plays the hits? Are they just a the person who knows what's already popular with the audience and plays it or are they the person who actively makes something popular and I think it's important I think it's important to keep in mind there is within broadcasting that there is a specific idea of the DJ not as the person who's just like a, a an expert curator who makes hits you know the BBC Radio 1 like for decades had a policy that that DJs were not allowed to exercise their personal preferences. You just had to play what was in the top 40. There was a, there was a handful of nighttime DJs on BBC Radio 1, like John Peel, who were permitted to like, play what they want. But it was a big scandal in the early 90s. It was it was kind of part of the Britpop moment. It was a big scandal when Radio 1 decided, oh, actually, we're just going to arbitrate taste now. We're just going to play stuff we think is cool. And if stuff's in the top 40 and we don't think it's cool, we won't play it. So they said they weren't going to play status quo, even though they had a top five single. And they were going to play, you know, dreadful indie bands like because they like that sort of thing. So um, and that was sort of the genesis of Britpop in a way. So... It is a sort of tension. There's this tension between the idea of the DJ simply as sort of knowing what the audience wants because they know the audience, and 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 the, on the other hand, the idea of the DJ is sort of knowing what the audience wants before the audience knows it, and somehow kind of being able to shape their taste or guide them in a particular direction, and. Um, and that is sort of interesting because that does feed into then the, the role of the club DJ. That The club DJ then becomes somebody who, you know, when you're DJing at a party you know there's a real kind of what well, there is there's, there's a perpetual sort of ambivalence or a kind of cycle or a sort sort of undecidability between well are you just playing what you know the crowd wants to hear or are you telling them what they want to hear or you know actually you're doing something that's neither not exactly either of those things and any sort of both of them it's a tension but it's
0: also without that tension maybe there there would be there would be no interest in in Djing um I mean I think that's I yeah, yeah, point. yeah definitely. Of- yeah, I mean, what we're onto here already is, I guess, one of the fundamental uh, differences between the the party DJ uh, and the radio DJ is that the party DJ gets kind of this instantaneous feedback from the dancing crowd uh, in relationship to a selection. Uh, with the, with the with the radio DJ, there's always the the audience is much much larger. Thus the that radio that's the thus radio's appeal to the music industry. Um, but you never quite know how the audience is responding. I mean you know that's that's maybe changed today where people can kind of provide their kind of constant stream of kind of you know social media responses as DJs are making selections and the, and the rest of it but back then that was that wasn't that, there wasn't this kind of possibility. Um,
1: well I think interestingly I think that was the origin of the phone in. The idea of the mm. phone-in phone show was DJs wanted people to phone in and, and give feedback on the records to get that. I mean, you're right, but you know those sort of rock and roll DJs from the 50s will still talk about people phoning up and them getting more phone calls when a record was hot. But obviously that's a way of solving that problem. It's solving the, an attempt, an imperfect attempt to solve the problem. How do you get that instant feedback?
0: Absolutely. No, and they talk of, you know, there's always this talk about the lights flashing in the control room, isn't it? Where where more people are phoning in. So yeah, so it's something that the radio DJ craved. Um, you're right. And of course, pirate radio made, you know, the idea of the shout shouting out and people phoning in and just kind of having a constant conversation online almost. So it's a it's a continual feedback loop, uh, with the music often played yeah. at quite a low level. Is is something that has also become very prominent as well with with our culture. But this is this was still radio's limitation. Is it could you know? It like its ability was that indeed its mass media status that it could reach a kind of an indefinite number of people uh, in one go and be a unifier in that way as well. Um, but at the same time, it lack it lack the ability to really get a specific group of people. You know, um, in political terms, they would call it a focus group or something, I guess, and just get that immediate response, uh, unmediated response to what they're what they're making of it.
1: A- it's the difference between a mediated community and a sort of face to face community, exactly, isn't it?
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: The the radio audio. I mean, you know, people have written very powerfully and, and talked very powerfully, but about the sort of Im- the imaginary the imagined community of the rock and roll audience in the 50s being this mm. kind of desegregated imagined community. But obviously mm. that's quite different
0: to the face-to-face experience. But what about yeah, an yeah. example of
1: a record? Well, exactly,
0: the- I was going to say. So let's let's go back to Frankie Crocker because he did really become this hugely influential figure I mean, he was the number. He was the best-known kind of uh, radio DJ in New York City during, you know, most of the nineteen seventies. And he was seen to sort of shape a a sound. Um, There was, you know, it was it was clearly black. uh, Had very strong elements of jazz, soul, and R and B and funk. And yet, it was also kind of had a kind of upward sort of mobility to it. There was a kind of a slickness. It was it was kind of it was a almost a successor to what Barry Gordy was doing at Motown, um, where there was also a kind of a focus on crossing over. Um, And Frankie Crocker also became very tuned into the party scene uh, that was uh, unfolding in New York City during the first half of the 1970s he would soon go on to be spending an awful lot of time in DJ booths uh, in order to kind of find out what the New York City DJs were going to play in particular later on Larry Levan Uh, and he would get these sneak previews of these records and kind of then go through this filtering process in order to work out what would work on radio um and what might not even if some records were were, were good in clubs so yeah so he was there was a, a further so he wasn't just uh, interested in playing what the the club DJs were playing or the party DJs were playing but he was He was interested in it but then he wanted to kind of apply his own filter Um, but he was very much at the forefront um, of this kind of emergence of a kind of a new a new soulful sound that would soon become this kind of genre of disco Uh, and one of these early records that he played that was very much in tune with what the the party and club djs in new york city were also playing at the same time was was uh, barry white records Barry White was kind of stuck in the sort of, and the Love Unlimited orchestra, Barry White's Love Unlimited orchestra was stuck in the kind of basements of his record label uh, because it wasn't a kind of marketing priority. Uh, But Frankie Crocker kind of got hold of the record. Uh, New York City's DJs were working in the parties and clubs also got hold of the record and it went on to become this kind of um, million selling hit that went to number one. So let's have a listen to Love's Theme.
1: So that a you know really interesting sort of lush piece of production. Mm. Really interesting in the way they're taking that kind of sixties string sound and bringing you know bringing giving it more of a beat. This real sort of classic early disco in that sort of lushness. But then what you're getting on the dance floors at, at parties like the loft is often is often is often stuff like that. But it's often a more kind of hard, slightly harder sound or, or more percussive. A key contributor to that is records that are actually coming out out of Africa and so really famously Manu Dibango's soul makosa that we played already a few episodes ago it's supposedly the first record that got really popularized initially by a party Tj it wasn't because it played people playing on the on the radio. And that was David Mancuso. It was David playing it at the loft, and then other d- people hearing it at the loft and talking about it, telling their friends. Other DJs playing it because it had been played at the loft, and and eventually it reaches the ears of the
0: radio DJs.
1: So was it being played on the radio?
0: Yeah. Well, this is this is the whole point. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this was kind of one of the cl- one of the claims of Love Saves the Day was that indeed this was this was basically the first record that we can say was turned into a hit because of uh, party and and club play but not radio play because it was it got basically uh the short version is uh, that it got into the charts on um, i think 23rd of june 1973 uh, having a quick uh, sneak uh, look at the pdf of love saves the day uh, to give that information and when it got into the charts in june 1973 it got there without and without radio having played that record um, so one thing to say, of course, as you kind of already noted, Jeremy, is it was just a, there's something about this record. It's kind of its rawness, it's, its funkiness, its rhythmic drive, its kind of jazz elements, its soul elements. Uh, it's kind of a mix of kind of, you know, uh, African and United States, maybe even European idioms as well. Uh, just made it a kind of, you know, a, a huge record uh, for David Mancuso. Another DJ, actually, Alfie Davison, uh, was also playing it. Alfie Davison had played at Jungle. Um, but he didn't, Alfie Davison didn't have anything like the kind of magnetism and popularity of, of David. So David played it. Uh, the, one of the things that kind of marked out the loft was that it was indeed a private party. There were no other private parties uh running along similar lines until the end of 1972 when the 10th floor got going. And the 10th floor was a pretty strictly white, gay, and largely middle-class party. So it wasn't kind of taking too much away from David's crowd, I think we could kind of say. So it's around this era that if a DJ finishes work on a Saturday night at 3.30 a.m., uh, which was uh, when discotheques had to close because of licensing regulations, the DJs wanted to go and, and have a bit of a party themselves. And they would. that's when they would all go to the loft on a Saturday night. So it just meant that David had this particular influence over playing to this kind of, you know, captive audience of of, of, of the city's kind of most influent, influential um, selectors, uh, DJs, who were kind of listening. And so everyone wanted a copy of Sol Makosa. Because we already played Tolmogosa
1: a few episodes ago, there's another track from '72 by Manu Dibango, which has many of the same qualities. It's a great kind of floor filler, in my experience. That is New Bell. <laughs>
0: Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks and back to the show. Love is, love is, love is the message. It was the beginning of this kind of, you know, a very big challenge to the existing kind of structures established by the music industry throughout the course of the, the 20th century. The music industry was very used to kind of controlling, you know, how it would kind of manufacture effectively or market its hits through its relationship with radio. And all of a sudden, records were starting to get into the charts. You know, Love Unlimited Orchestra was another one that wasn't particularly planned by the record companies. Records were getting into the charts that weren't part of the marketing campaigns of the record companies. So there's, a, you know, one one could once again say there's a form of democratization going on here. This is about people who, you know, being able to kind of experience music that they wanted and then in these kind of unregulated situations of this kind of, you know, nascent party culture, And then, you know, against the kind of strategies and plans of the music industry, go out to buy these kind of records. So the DJs were the kind of, you know, the the party DJs were the the key medium for this change, really. And it would go on to kind of uh, shape much of what would follow during the 1970s in terms of the rise of the rise of disco. Uh, And disco's kind of, you know, challenge to rock, which kind of culminated towards the end of, of, of the decade. Before we get onto that, I think we also want to like think more around what's going on in terms of the major developments um, of um, club DJing, if you like, in terms of technique, techniques, mixing techniques that um, club and party DJs were beginning to introduce. Um, and, you know, we, we want to start, we want to, to also kind of dwell a little bit on the way that, you know, mixing... Uh, which which Francis Grasso, as we discussed last week, had sort of uh, started to uh, innovate uh, in very early 1970, and which DJs such as Michael Capello in particular had taken forward in terms of smoothness and feel. And then Nicky Siano had taken uh, even further in terms of the kind of sheer level of activity that the DJ would start to introduce into these selections. We then get to this next stage where mixing, uh, really becomes kind of central to what the DJ does. The actual ability of the DJ to mix becomes a kind of a notable feature of the experience. So the the figure who's got who's most reputed within hip hop culture anyway to have kind of to have kind of innovated this this form of what's often referred to as turntablism is uh, DJ Cole Herc. So Jeremy, do you want to kind of reflect a bit on kind of you know the, what could be seen to be the Jamaican roots of this approach to to mixing.
1: Okay, so the story goes: Herc is a de- is a DJ, is a Jamaican DJ who's moved from Jamaica at the beginning of the 70s to New York. And he brings with him some of that dub sound system and reggae sound that dub and reggae sound system sensibility. So he brings with him experience with toasting, as it was called in Jamaica, what would come to be called rapping in the States. Uh, he also brings with him arguably a sort of dub sensibility which is able to identify very quickly the sort of essential rhythmic elements of any particular piece of music and then abstract them and and emphasize them and re-emphasize them in order to create this highly percussive soundscape and so the story goes that it's this particular sensibility which encourages her to start developing this technique of isolating the breaks in funk records isolating the percussive breaks Mm. and using two two turntables and two copies of a record to be able to keep repeating or sort of playing around with these isolated funk breaks And this is, you know, often taken to be the sort of the genesis of the breakbeat, the genesis of the sort of hip hop style of DJing, and really the the genesis of the whole sort of hip hop approach to sort of post funk music making. It's debatable whether all that wasn't already inherent in the emergent practice of the New York DJs, but it's certainly it is notable that if any sort of genre of music making in the world at the beginning of the seventies is about absolutely isolating, identifying and emphasising the bass and the drums, the rhythm section and the percussive elements of a a bit of music than it is is the dub producers in in Jamaica. And Herc seems to bring with him from experience of that context, he seems to bring this particular attention to that. So an example of that, of a record which uh, Herc became well-known for playing in this way I've described uh, is the incredible Bond Go Band's Apache Um, The break around 2.15, around 2 minutes 15 seconds in is the kind of famous break, one of the original break beats that became the sort of genetic DNA of hip hop and drum and bass and things like that afterwards. And then but Tim obviously you know Herc. I think arguably I'm gonna say there's a there's a little bit of tension around sometimes around this kind of story because we we both started writing and thinking about this history. At a moment when the sort of official history of DJ culture more or less credited Herc with just inventing anything you can do with turntables, didn't it? Back in the mid '90s, there were sort of documentaries, for example, would get made that pretty much implied if they didn't just state that before DJ Herc and Grandmaster Flash, nobody else had taken two turntables and put and, and created soundtracks out of them. And obviously, that's problematic. And it's also, it's even arguably problematic to say they're the only people identifying and emphasizing rhythmic sections of music. So, who else Mm -hmm. is doing that in New York?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, just to sort of say, yeah, there's. I mean, to re-emphasize what you're, what you're, what you just said, I guess, is that there's this kind of idea that you know the early histories of of DJ culture to a certain extent assumed that innovation happened within uh, black DJing, within African American DJing, and there's no question that the contribution of black DJs was very significant to the evolution of of DJing in this period that we're looking at 70 to 75 but you know one of the surprising things that sort of of you know the early research into Love Saves the Day was to note that you know most most of the early DJ profession a lot of which got going about three to four years before Herc started DJing were Italian-Americans so it's none of this is to take you know, credit away from the, the the input of black DJs, but it's also to just tr- try and look at the way in which you know, divergent and diverse communities were being energized by the same kind of desire, uh, which is to to gather in in groups, in communities, and to dance, and for that, for, and to seek out music that is going to drive, propel that that dance music, that dance floor. To reaching ecstatic peaks, um, and the thing about Herc is, I think to a certain extent, his you know the, his reputation. Although you know his innovation was his innovation was important, his reputation has been you know maybe somewhat exaggerated at the expense of some sort of lesser-known DJs. Uh, we don't need to talk anymore right now about Francis Grasso or David Mancuso. Um, But there were other DJs who were kind of uh, paralleling what what Herc did when he started to kind of mix between the breaks. I mean, one thing to quickly note is that Herc made his, effectively his debut was in August 1973 uh, in this rec room on Cedric Avenue where he kind of held this party with his sister Cindy, who who was hosting the party. But at that party, although this is becoming a bit more confused now in sort of online articles and the rest of it, at that party, you know, Herc started off by playing kind of, you know, dub music and reggae. Uh, it didn't really catch on. And at that point, he started playing funk tracks. Um, but these were the, the funk tracks he were playing, he was playing were funk tracks that were tearing up, tearing up New York City dance floors, you know, th- throughout the city. And this was, you know, the tracks were being were as pop were already well established uh, on this kind of in this downtown party scene that we've we've already spoken about. In terms of the actual DJing techniques, Herc didn't really get into sort of actually this, this famous technique that he's supposedly innovated, the merry-go-round. That didn't happen until the summer of 1974, and it, it happened at an open-air party. And it was Herc responding to what was the beginning of the emergence of, of breaking, effectively, uh, and realising that the breakers were at their most energetic during during these kind of the percussive sessions, the breaks. You mean dancing when you say breaking? Oh, breaking. Actually, no, I mean, well, some people call it break dancing, but breaking, like going down, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, this, this, uh, this form of dance that emerged uh, d- again during the kind of opening half of the 1970s, uh, this form of dance known as breaking, where dancers would go to the floor and, you know, would go, you know, use, you know, there'll be, a, you know, use their a lot of arm, arm, you know, use their arms to support their bodies and kind of would, would do these kind of gymnastic movements. So that's breaking. Um, so that this merry-go-round technique that Herc introduced uh, happened in the summer of 1974. And what we know is that by this point, uh, Boston DJs are already starting to mix between the breaks in a in a concerted way. And also there's this figure called Walter Gibbons, um, who's already starting to go to sun, su- uh, Sunshine Sounds to kind of press up acetate bootlegs, uh, is already also mixing between the breaks and is apparently doing so with uh, remarkable precision. Um, so one of the things that also kind of, you know, maybe just, you know, me gives us reason to talk about Walter in, a, in addition uh, to Cole Herc is the fact that, you know, Cool Herc realised that there was a kind of, that people would get into mixing, which we would enjoy uh, being able to hear back-to-back breaks, but he mixed them in with effectively no technique. In fact, I think that perhaps he might not have even used a, a set of headphones. I'm, I'd need to check up on that. But Herc's concern wasn't smooth and seamless mixing. Um, and in fact, there's something about breaking as a form of dance in which there's not re- necessarily um, a need for a kind of smooth and consistent rhythm. Part of the acceleration or the energy of the dance is the way that it kind of often isn't intended to be even to keep the time of the beat that's playing. There's often a, a discrepancy between the, the, the rhythm of the record and the, the rhythm of the dance. This wouldn't go down in a, in a party situation, this kind of uh, very rough form of, of mixing that Herc was practising in the summer of '74 when he introduced the merry-go-round. Um, and so Walter Gibbons was super, super precise. Uh, François Cavorkian uh, who was a drummer, uh, um, bought, grew up in France and then uh, traveled to the United States, uh, I think, during ni- in 1975 in order to kind of basically work to learn about jazz drumming, but ended up becoming, a, you know, a Got involved in the whole party scene and started to work as a live drummer in Galaxy Twenty One, which is where Walter G- is an after-hours spot uh, where Walter Gibbons was DJing. Um, so Walter was already doing what he'd already been doing for for a while, and Francois just re- you know in an interview with him recounted the way that. Uh, Walter would take these records such as uh, Rare Earth's Happy Song and also Jermaine Jackson's Uruku and he would take the breaks in these records and he would mix between them and Francois was supposed to keep up you know so he was supposed to play drums to keep to kind of match what Walter was doing and Francois told me in this interview that you know he couldn't really tell where the mix was you know there was this percussive break that lasted for about 30 seconds or something uh, and it would last for 10 minutes, 12 minutes, and it was, and there was, and for Francois, there was no way of kind of knowing uh, which point kind of Walter was mixing between these two records. So it's just an example, I think, of where, you know, you had someone like Walter Gibbons as, you know, for a, for a long time, an un- unheralded, un- unheralded figure who I think needs to be given credit for, you know, for simultaneously innovating this kind of important technique. And just to kind of recognize that, that you know, what was what was happening in New York City, in, in some respects, it was citywide. It wasn't what was going on in hip hop, and what was going on in disco, or what was going on in the Bronx, and what was going on in downtown New York. These were there were similar energies were feeding through the city. So let's hear a bit. Let's let's hear one. Of, let's hear one of these tracks that Walter would would use as this kind of material to manipulate uh, in order to create these extended mixes. So uh, this is the uh, break that appears in Rare Earth's Happy Song. And just to kind of say that um, edits were created by people like Francois um, of these songs and released on uh, Sunshine Sound, uh, which was the original editing studio for these DJs. And you can now go on Bandcamp to find Sunshine Sound and get vinyl versions of these edits that were being pressed up at Sunshine Sound. Okay, so this is a rare earth happy song. There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love is the message.
1: So one of the sort of fascinating things that's going on in the early 70s with the emergence of this DJ scene in New York is the formation of the New York City record pool. Now this is an example of a sort of coordinated, sort of collective action, if you like, by this emerging category of professional DJs. So, so what was the story with that exactly?
0: Yeah, well, the, the story is that data um, is that is that um, DJs were uh, hungry to find um, new music uh, that they could play uh, these these kind of mushrooming dance floor crowds, uh, and they would go to record companies as well as record shops, but they would go to record companies to just kind of try and find out what what was going to be newly released and to try and also get free copies. Um, But it was a very chaotic situation. The uh, music industry promoters um, didn't really understand much about um, DJ culture uh, in terms of party DJ culture. They didn't necessarily take uh, party DJs uh, particularly seriously. And they probably also found them a bit awkward to deal with. They weren't necessarily very good at, let's say, getting up in the morning, for example. So there was a general s- sense of kind of chaos. And there was also a sort of randomness to kind of which DJs would kind of get these get records given to them for free and which DJs wouldn't. And so, so there was a kind of, sort of certain favourites would emerge, uh, but that would leave other DJs feeling a bit embittered. Uh, And one of the the DJs to get really kind of upset about this situation in particular was Steve DeQuisto, one of these pioneering African-American DJs. Uh, who had been a protégé of Francis Grasso and had become very close with David Mancuso and and had indeed introduced Francis Grasso and Michael Capello and many other people, actually, uh, to The Loft. And one day Steve uh, went to a record company to try and get a copy of of the record and was just kind of basically turned turned away. Uh, And he was kind of seething about this experience and sort of turned to David to kind of explain it. Uh, and David was upset because you know he really was passionate about the idea of social progress, people being treated equally, and also about uh, people's work being valued. Um, and he could see that really the the DJs were becoming this kind of this emerging profession that wasn't that wasn't being treated um, with you know with. In, in a fair or reasonable way by record companies that were starting to make significant amounts of money from from the promote, from their kind of de facto promotional efforts. Uh, we've already listened to to Love Theme. This was a, a record that was kind of pretty much stuck in record company basements. Uh, I think it was 21st century, but went on to be through DJs kind of picking out this record from the basements, uh, deciding to play and then going heavily on that record. Uh, It became this kind of million selling record. So there was this also this idea um, about justice. And so David suggested to Steve that... they form um, this thing that David said should be called a record pool. And he said it was like a carpool. Uh, Basically, everybody, the the quote uh, uh, that uh, that David told me for Love Saves the Day is kind of, it's like a carpool where everybody jumps in and gets organised. Every DJ would be treated equally. Um, So one of the things that had to happen at this point is that DJs had to get organised uh, the, uh, this up until now they had sort of they were often friends with each other. They liked hanging out with each other. They had often had similar tastes, similar preferences, similar styles. but they were almost definitionally disorganized, disaggregated. Uh, and it was David who really uh, suggested that they have a meeting. Uh, and sort of start with all the DJs, you know, in, in in the city who are working in parties and in clubs, but not re- radio DJs, uh, and to just sort of see what would come out of this, co- this kind of meeting and this collective action. This kind of came about through David and Steve and also Vince Alletti, uh, who was a kind of key figure, who was one of the first kind of key writers about uh, this kind of emerging kind of uh, party and dance music culture. And it was uh, it was kind of launched uh, uh, or inaugurated uh, in June 1975. We haven't quite got up to this point uh, in the loft story yet, but by this point, David had moved to from uh, 647 Broadway to 99 Prince Street. Uh, we'll return to this in a later episode. And in this new place that David had moved to, uh, he had a whole warehouse uh, on Prince Street, and I think he had—I uh, think it was maybe four floors or three floors—but uh, he had more space than he needed for the party. So he dedicated one of these floors to the record pool, and all of these DJs—I think it was 65—showed uh, up for this this uh, inaugural meeting, um, and it was really all the DJs in the city, and it was quite idealistic. It, it developed its kind of a declaration of intent. Uh, I I could even read a little bit Uh, it runs we the undersigned have agreed to become associated in the record pool which has been established for the mutual benefit of discotheque DJs and record companies the record pool will be a self-service self-regulated independent calm center I love the description independent calm center which will act as a point of exchange between record companies and discotheque DJs. Uh, it goes on the record. The pool will take responsibility for establishing the absolute legitimacy of DJs of the DJs involved, because this was it was important. It was credible. Uh, the, the part of the fear of the record pool is uh, is all the companies is what happened if people who weren't even going to be playing these records in parties were going to start getting hold of free copies. Um, so it was, the pool was establishing the absolute legitimacy and it goes on, the pool will be a place to receive and distribute recordings and information pertaining to recordings. The record pool will enhance rapport among the participants. The benefits to the record companies would be a direct and efficient means of distributing their product to the discotech DJs. In turn, we as a group and individually will inform the record companies about the progress of their products. This will result in our being able to devote more time and energy to the creative aspects of listening and presenting music so it's kind of interesting the djs are saying we are wasting time trying to get free product by going to the offices Uh, we can't kind of access this product uh, you know efficiently the record companies don't want to well don't really want to you know organize it properly and yet the djs can offer the record companies a service uh, so it's in the it's in the it's in the interest of the companies to give these DJs uh, free copies. What well, David was very keen on is 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 that the, the DJs would then provide the record companies with feedback. And there were these feedback sheets were introduced. Uh, The DJs were supposed to report back on kind of what records were particularly popular or even what parts of a record were particularly popular uh, with their dancers and what records didn't go down well at all. So the idea was it was a kind of a way of an uh, information processing system uh, in which DJs could could let the record companies know what records they should be uh, basically promoting. Uh, which ones would work best on the on the dance floor. So it was a kind of ingenious uh, operation, even though it falls somewhat short of a fully-fledged union, if you like. Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because in, in, in many
1: ways, it prefigures some really contemporary political concerns. Because the DJ, and this in some ways, this is the sort of analytical payoff for us, I think, of all this history, is to say the DJ emerges as a specific kind of worker, a specific kind of cultural figure at this moment. But the DJ will go on to become really exemplary in some ways of a certain kind of person, a certain kind of figure who will become more and more important as you know what social theorists call the knowledge economy gives way to the sort of post-war world of industrial manufacturing and hard science as kind of the driving forces of the economy. So, I mean, what happens to the world economy from the 70s onwards? Manufacturing all gradually, and in some cases not so gradually, relocates from what had been the sort of industrial core of places like America and Britain to Asia. There are there are some there are some remaining centres of kind of high-tech manufacturing in places like Germany. But then what happens in places like Britain in the States is the if you want any kind if you want a job increasingly the kind of job you can get is one where you're sort of you're you're not making stuff or digging stuff out of the ground anymore one way or another you're handling flows of information like whether you are like an advertiser you know whether you're somebody working in marketing whether you're somebody working in retail you know, going into the 90s and 2000s, you might be somebody working in a call center. In all of these contexts, what is your job? Your job is basically, as I say, handling flows of information in some ways or another. Even if, indeed, even if you're an academic, if you're a podcaster, you know, what is your job? You're, You're handling flows of information. And the DJ, you know, that is their kind of job. The DJ emerges at a moment, really, in the in, in the development of recorded music culture, where apart from anything else, there's too much music for sort of individuals to keep up with. There's too much innovation for just one person who isn't a specialist, who isn't doing it full time, to really be able to map it, to really know what's going on. And the DJ is somebody who that's their job. I mean, it's a bit like the curator. It's a bit like a, a curator or an archivist. But it's but it's in a much more kind of popular idiom, and so in this sense, you know, they the DJ is a sort of model of what you know would come to be called by economists a post-Fordist worker or a you know a, a knowledge worker, somebody inhabiting the postmodern context.
0: They are interested in in uh, finding ways to defend their rights uh, protect their economic interests in this instance it's they want free records they're not paid very much money for what they do they they're not really considered skilled professionals uh, as they don't have much money to buy music uh, and they, they they want that music so that's one thing that they're doing and they want but they but
1: they're also recognizing that they are doing free labor for those record companies And that's a key thing that will become a key theme in the 90s, the 2000s, and to this day, that we're all constantly providing information for marketing companies and media and cultural companies. These days, it's through our social media activity. We're constantly doing free work. For these people, and they are saying, "Well, we, we should get compensated to, at least to
0: some extent for that work, aren't they?" Well, it's, it's yeah, you know, it's kind of free work, and it's not free work because they get paid by the clubs. So, um, but you're up, but it's true that they are recognizing that they are doing something that is of economic benefit to the record companies, and that they should also get some sort of recognition for that extra labour. Uh, and that's why you know the idea that they should get free free promotional copies comes in. But the thing that I wanted to add is that while they they are they do want to protect their interests, they do need to find ways to earn some more money or get some more records. Uh, at the same time, they are as motivated by the the cultural argument as the economic argument. They don't just want free records. They also want to be able to shape the taste of the listeners and to have the really good records be the records that, you know, first of all they can get to play uh, as 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 quickly as anyone else. But then to persuade the record companies to actually um, release or to prioritise the promotion of the of the best records, they want to change. They want to change the world that they are in culturally. Uh, they want their their this new aesthetic. to to spread effectively. Without music, life would be a mistake. So let's, I think it'd be good if we listen to one of these records that that the record pool was kind of trying to um, uh, support early on. Uh, It's a little hard to know exactly what record, what was going on with all these records, because uh, I don't think there's any written record of kind of, of of all this information. But there were um, a couple of issues of something called the Daily Double that were published this was the official monthly publication of the record pool as i say i think only a couple of issues came out but um, i do have copies of these and uh, one of the records that appears uh, in the first uh, issue of the Daily uh, daily double is this one so this is the glass family smoke your troubles away
1: Great record, and uh, listeners, neither of us had heard of that before we were preparing this episode, but I did go out and buy the record immediately. Yeah. I say go out, I mean, I ordered it from Discogs. That's not, I didn't go out anywhere. I, I sat here while
0: talking to Tim and placed an order on it. Exactly. Discogs. The condition of the contemporary DJ. Uh, <laughs> yeah, summarized in a moment. Yeah. You know, oh, that sounds nice. I'm going to order it on Discogs. <laughs> Love is, love is, love is the message. All right, so to just uh, play one, one last record uh, for this show, um, I thought it would be good to put on Jackie's Son, 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 um, which was a Walter Gibbons edit from 1976. Son. Kind of worth noting, uh, um, this is something we will come back to, is that DJs who were employed to do remixes, and of course Walter Gibbons uh, was employed to do the first, to to mix the first commercial 12-inch release, uh, so that was 10% double exposure. But at this point, DJs could only edit the remixes. They couldn't go into the multitrack recordings and decide if they wanted to, say, take out uh, certain tracks or introduce certain overdubs. So early remixing is just kind of it's using a razor to to cut and splice effectively, and um, and so we hear an example in Jackie's Sun 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 of Walter basically going to the to the breakbeat of the drums forever. Uh, you have the song, you have the instrumentation, then it just cuts to beats, and the beats get to be kind of looped, uh, and we the result is this kind of you know this kind of break oriented record that's very very trippy very abstract uh, and seems to be one of the earliest records to capture this kind of a new aesthetic basically this is this is dj's taking as walter gibbons taking what he and the likes of cool Herc were doing boston djs were doing um with you know behind in the dj booth in these kind of with these kind of live mixes and then transporting that to the, to the kind of studio uh, and, and and creating this this and you know while this, will, this practice was established in, in Jamaica of, 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 um, of the producers responding to the way records went down and going and editing them accordingly, Jamaica didn't produce this kind of breakbeat aesthetic as a result. So this is kind of the New York uh, conclusion of this particular DJing uh, phenomenon. Yeah.
1: one reason why the dj especially like for our generation in the 90s like eventually becomes this 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 figure this sort of fantasy figure this this idea of the ideal job the ideal kind of lifestyle is because it seems to carry with it the possibility of this sort of flexibility and self-expression and creativity and doing what you love and there's also something to that Of of course what's fascinating is You know, what's going on in that moment in the 70s with these examples we're so fond of, like the loft, the gallery, the the DJ pool, is to some extent that search for freedom is still taking place within within the framework of a very sort of collectivist approach to life. Yep. Like, the, this isn't the idea that you're just going to go off and, you know, becoming a DJ just means going off to become kind, some kind of super celebrity. Mm. It means you're sort of tied to a community. It means you're, and it means you are still trying to kind of have your cake and eat it in terms of having freedom, but also having sort of collectivity mm. and, and solidarity. Mm. And I think this brings us to something really interesting, which is David Mancuso's own rejection of the concept of the DJ very, very early on in his history. Mm. You know, DJ didn't like the, David didn't like the term DJ he didn't like the way in which the DJ was emerging as this very kind of individualized uh, ideal of what it means to be A kind of free, flexible post 40s knowledge worker. He had this idea of the musical host. I've always said before, you know, if if he'd known more about Jamaican sound system culture, I think he'd have seen, he'd have, you know, might well have used the term, like the term selector. Because it's, and it's very much this idea that A, you know, you're part of a community, you're hosting people, you know, you're part of a group, you're connected to to this whole assemblage, which includes your crowd and, and the people who help you put on the party, etc. Mm-hmm. And you're and when people I always I mean, I've been really influenced by this, you know, I always say, I mean, I've been DJing fairly successfully in sort of semi commercially for you know 15 years now. And I always say to people, I'm not a DJ. I don't go to and what I mean by that is, I don't go around to other people's nights, you know, playing records. I mean, people ask me sometimes. I usually I just politely say no. It's just not what I do. And instead, I see myself as part of this sort of collective practice that my sort of practice of sticking on records Mm. can't be separated from. And for DJ, and um, the DJ on the other hand is someone who's kind of hypermobile. In that as I understand it, as the way we the way in which we usually imagine it. The hypermobile, they're someone who isn't dependent on a context. They're not dependent on having one club or one crowd or one community. Instead, they're completely independent from that. And they're just able to go from place to place, sort of playing their records. And in that way, the DJ ends up, especially with the sort of superstar DJ of the 90s onwards, becomes this kind of ideal figure of the neoliberal celebrity you know, someone who's, who's famous for having this kind of vague personal brand and this sort of specialist knowledge, even though they don't actually create anything themselves anyway. And they're just sort of, you know, they just sort of become a pure brand. I mean, this is the situation these days with a lot of the kind of EDM DJs, you know, that they just, all they do is press a button and like press it and, and play a kind of pre-selected load of kind of di- you know, digital tracks. And David is kind of incredible. David could sort of see all of this coming. He could see all of that as implicitly one of the things that DJs might be turning into. And he
0: rejected it. He said, no, I'm not that. I'm not that. Yeah. I mean, David got this from the REM party. This was his, in a way, this was his model. You know, it's it's you. It's friends gathering. You pay a small contribution at the door. There's some music, but the music is just part of a general environment. And really, the the kind of the 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 image that David recounted is there's a, a turntable in the corner of a room, and what the host of the party does is puts on a records. I do think on this basis that David wouldn't probably have called himself a selector because the selector has a very specific role really within the within the context of, of a party whereas the, David always, I, th- I think David liked musical hosts because putting on records was the last thing that David did almost, it was about establishing the environment, the invite list, the decorations the food, the, just everything really that, that a host can possibly do and the music was was integral to that but I mean David did say he never wanted to be a DJ the way he put it is he thought that the a DJ is an entertainer and indeed, as you say, it's the DJs for hire. Effectively, the DJ moves around. The DJ doesn't form, generally, isn't paid to form deep relationships per se. And
1: it was organisation. It's organisation in sim- in simple terms. And That's a key. I mean, when Cedric, who I do beauty and the beat with, mm. and I, talk, I know when we talk about what we do, the mm. phrase we use is party organizer. And that's partly to reject the fact that venues want to refer to us as promoters. And we always say, well, we're not promoters. We're not bringing in other, we're not hiring DJs and trying to make a buck. We are. And the organiser, it's an interesting, because obviously in in political circles, you know, organising is is the key activity. Organising is bringing people together. It's assembling the collective and that's what david really saw his key role as being i think it was to assemble the collectivity that would that would come together for this experience that's that was the key role <laughs>